Good evening, Metsville and baseball fans everywhere. My name is Michael Ricolin, and on behalf of my partners, I welcome you back to another episode of a Metsian podcast. Lots of intriguing items on our docket this evening. Let's get started by bringing in my partner and introducing this evening's guest. First, Rich, my friend from Connecticut. How are you, sir? Well, I think like everybody else, Mike, I've got the cold that's going around, but uh, you know that happens. And um, definitely looking forward to uh, to talking Mets tonight. And ironically, I, I'm not sure if you saw this, but uh, 86 days until pitchers and catchers, and of course, 86 is a uh, number that means quite a bit to us Met fans. So it's great that we're doing the show tonight when it's 86 days till pitchers and catchers. That is a magical number in Metsville, indeed. Uh, wow, Thanksgiving is already right around the corner. How about that? Uh, this evening's guest is, uh, let's just say, the resident wizard of Metsville. He is Metsjudamus, a.k.a. John Coppinger. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you. It's always uh, great to be here. And, uh, yeah, that cold is going around because I, I got a remnant of it, too. So I'm glad we're all at least starting the show on even ground. I don't feel so, uh, I don't feel so special, which is good. And, uh, and yeah, if it's 86 days until pitchers and catchers, then I'm glad I'm part of the show tonight. You guys keep those germs to yourselves. Uh, in the meantime, John, please take a moment out. Tell us everything that you're doing and where we can find it. Well, um, I am, uh, I am on, uh, the sports com slash metstradamus. Uh, and uh, I also do a podcast every once in a while when I'm motivated called the Bur- Burger Ball Podcast. We uh, brought it back a couple of weeks ago, and hopefully we can uh, be back sparingly throughout the off season. Very good. What do you say, gentlemen? Let us ignite the hot stove with a bunch of buckets of kerosene and matches. How can we not <laughs> lead off with what's coming out of Houston? Oh, my God. Uh, you know, and the broad blanket is Houston accused of stealing signs, but the depth of this scandal uh, grows deeper by the second. It originally started with A.J. Hinch and Carlos Beltran and Alex Cora. Uh, more recently, we're finding out that, you know, this might have been sparked by an executive with emails and trying to get scouts involved. And, you know, this is just getting a little bit weird. Uh, so, John, why don't you uh, pick up with uh, what's smoking out of Houston. Man, it is like you said, it's very weird. It's uh it, it's certainly a uh, a sign that there are still teams out there that are willing to go the extra mile to gain a competitive edge. That's been the one constant through baseball, hasn't it? You've got players and now executives that want to get that competitive edge whether it be through greenies in the 60s, performance-enhancing drugs in the 90s and 2000s, and now, and, now the, and now sign stealing. And let's be honest, sign stealing has been a part of baseball since pretty much the very beginning. And certainly you've heard, uh, you've heard stories about how the Giants stole signs in 1951 when they made their epic comeback from 14 games down to overtake the Dodgers and force a playoff. So this kind of thing does happen. But when you start to introduce video in it, that's when it becomes dicey. I've always been a, uh, a proponent of the thought that if you get your sign stolen by the naked eye, then it's on you or even with telescopes or things of that nature. But when you start bringing in 
cameras and Apple watches, something that makes it impossible for a team to cover up their signs immediately. When you're talking about immediate benefit from, from the naked eye with, from, from what the naked eye sees with the benefit, with the help of a camera, then you're starting to talk about things that are unfair and things that are uh, too much of a a competitive advantage, an unfair competitive advantage, if you will. So I'm really interested to see how this plays out. I think in terms of penalties, I think you're going to see something. The one incident that comes to my mind, and it's from football, was the, was the Bounty, Bounty Gate scandal with Sean Payton and Greg Williams. And you saw that they were suspended for pretty much an entire season. I wouldn't be surprised if you saw something like that in terms of the penalties handed down to the Astros. I think they're going to aim high, and I think they're going to aim hard. I think you could see Hinch out for up to a full season. And in terms of Jeff Lunau, if it comes out that he knew about this and either turned a blind eye to it or encouraged it, then, man, I, I, I would venture – I would say, as far as I'm concerned, John Copalello, the Braves, got uh, banned from baseball for less than that. He cooked the books on prospects, which is bad enough. This is something that if this comes from the top and Lou now knew about it, he's in big trouble. Wow. Uh, we are now joined by our fellow partner, Sam Maxwell, the converted Mets fan. And, Sam, I threw the opening question out to John, uh, obviously concerning the Houston scandal with science stealing whatnot. Uh, so my job is today's opener is done. The managers come out and pulled me for the game. You're today's starter. Pick it up where we left off. And I'll just uh, sit idly by and wait for my turn to voice my opinion, sir. Well, hello out there to all you Metsian folk. This is the converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Rising Alpha Report. I, I have a Rising Alpha Report. Wow. Put a dollar wow. in the jar. Wow. It, it's like prepared. you called them the Tampa Bay Devil Rays or something. Exactly. Wow. exactly. In podcast, ladies and gentlemen, and a little uh, – little homage just there. Uh, today's a flashback episode, apparently, uh, to uh, another life uh, amongst the three of us. Uh, and, and Mr. Metrodamus, John Coppinger, was there plenty of times as well when this format was called the Rising Apple Report. But this entire opener, uh, this, uh, you know, throwing it over my way, talk about coaxing my ego, Mike. Uh, maybe maybe we just invented a whole nother format for, for this, uh, for a Metzian podcast. Through the magic of the internet, thank God for allegory. Yes. Well, and and what an opening, uh, of, you know, just to come in on your rant, John. I think uh, you, you know, it, it, you bring up so many great points, and and I, it makes me think about how, like, you know, I don't like the job Rob Manfred is doing, um, but I guess I shouldn't say that he should have gotten ahead of this. You know, because this is very much new age technology, uh, a new new age of sign stealing that you have to kind of deal with as it comes along. And and here we are with this uh, this uh, particular scandal right now. So it's it, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. It's going to be very interesting to see how this all plays out. I, I think you made a great point, John, about Bounty Gate. 
and I think in that, um, you know, I was listening to WFAN all week, and for one, uh, a lot of national sports stories dominated the New York sports radio headlines. Uh, everybody just wanted to talk about this Astros scandal. Obviously, you have the Beltron connection, and uh, in regards to that, you know, I, I'm not the biggest fan of Mike Francesa, but I thought he made a great point as everybody was talking about Carlos Beltron uh, uh, possibly getting something, you know, because he was like a mastermind in all of this. Mike just kept reiterating that he was a player at the time, and and, and it, it goes up to the top. But even if, like, they knew he was going, uh, you know, it was his retirement year, it was his swan song for sure, uh, that doesn't mean that he wasn't, like, he, he, he had a higher level in terms of, you know, just the, the player category. Uh, so I thought Francesa made a good point that unless something, like, you really, like, uncover something really egregious, you know, what, what I, I'm not sure if you touched on it before I called, but do you think anything's going to happen regarding Carlos Beltran here? Um, well, I, I think that I guess I, I was I was just going to say I thought I'm sorry I thought he was asking me I I think if if there's any pe- penalties that come Beltron's way or even Alex Carr's way it'll be a slap on the wrist because there's the they're no longer with the organization and also they're not the highest players on the board I think when the suspensions get handed out if they get handed out they're going to aim high they're going to aim higher than Beltron and Cora. Mike, were you about to say something? No, I just didn't know who the question was directed to. That's all. Sorry. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was it was for John there, and um, yeah, I, I think that's a point. But Rich, do you think it makes a difference? It's obviously, depending on what they uncover, the fact that Cora was a bench coach at the time. No, I don't. I I agree with John. I think it it's an organizational issue. If it turns out to be an organizational issue, I think Major League Baseball will come down on the organization. Um, if everything we're hearing has some truth to it and that it was systemic, they'll go right to the top, you know, and, um, and I agree with that, with what John said as well, that it'll be a slap on the wrist. I could see Cora and Beltron getting fined maybe, and the organization um, maybe some very serious penalties, you know, maybe a suspension of, of Hinch for a year, like, like has been said already tonight, um, and even – as you go farther up the food chain, you know, maybe further suspensions. I don't think they, they can ban anybody, but you never know what kind of proof they have. Um, so that's what I see happening. You know, and when you think about it, what John was saying earlier, sign stealing has been a part of baseball since the very beginning. And, you know, the whole thing with Bobby Thompson, you know, and Branca to his dying day swore that Thompson had to sign and that they were using the electronic thing and the scoreboard, you know, flashing lights and all that kind of thing. Stealing signs is an art form, and if you do it, we all know, if you do it on the field, the only punishment is they'll throw at you, right? And it is part of the game. It's the gamesmanship. But using technology to steal signs is where baseball draws the line. Um, Obviously, technology has gone a long way, and we're hearing about iPads being used. But I'll ask you guys to think about this one. Guys go into into the clubhouse in between innings. And oh, you'll hear them say in post game. You know, I went in and I, I looked at some video and I saw that you know I was I was dropping my shoulder. I was you know doing this, doing that. How do you know that that's what they're doing? If you allow that technology in the clubhouse and the video room, and guys can do that, they you can't have technology on the bench. You can't have an Apple Watch. Can't have a phone. Can't have an iPad. 
But if they could go in the clubhouse and take a quick look at video, and, and supposedly they're looking at their swing or something like that, making in-game adjustments, how do you know that that's not what they're looking at? They're not looking at sign shilling. They're not looking at video of um, using technology to steal signs. So this is uh, <coughs> excuse me. This has the potential for very far. You know, this is can have very far-reaching uh, circumstances here because. It, technology is a big part of the game, and and what and where do you draw the line? You can you you put a major league baseball official in every clubhouse and say if they come in here they can only watch videotape of themselves and they can only watch videotape of the game? Probably not. So it, I think we're on the precipice here of of something pretty big um, because let's face it, technology has made it very easy. So what do you do? Do you ban technology during the game entirely? Could you? Should you? How would that impact things if guys aren't looking at video like they've been doing for years now? Um, so I, I think either it could be, look, you, you punish some individuals, punish an organization, or <laughs> you take a bigger look at it and you say, we need to do something more systemic, which could be a, quite a change. That's right. That's where I come down on it. You know, it it really is fascinating. Uh, and, and, you know, I never thought about it like that in terms of going – they're going back to see, like, what is not working with their swing. Why couldn't they, uh, you know, have that signs, uh, try to figure out what the signs are? I mean, you know what was interesting, Mike, about that John Boy tweet where he's breaking the video down, how you can hear the trash can? What's interesting about it was that Evan Gatt failed in that moment. Um, because, and I forget who the other team was. It might have been the Royals. No, no, the Royals was the Beltron clip. But uh, whoever, I think it was the White Sox, they adjusted, realizing what was going on with the can, and got Kevin Gaddis out. So right there, it's the gamesmanship that you're talking about. They, the Astros had figured something out. Obviously, the, the White Sox didn't know that it was um, – necessarily video uh you know just like a little spy camera in center field or whatever they're saying it, it was um but they still adjusted and got the batter out so uh, outside of the technological standpoint you know it seems like there's always they're always going to figure out a way to figure out what the opposition is doing and so you know it, it it's just it, to me it's just very nuanced, uh, one way or the other. You know, it's it, it's just a, such such an interesting thing, and it's you know, it's interesting when a new generation discovers sign stealing and is outraged. <laughs> Great point. Uh, you took the word right out of my mouth. Nuanced. It is a nuance. A nuance of science. Uh, I'm okay with sign stealing, just for as long as you know, done uh, traditional manners. Uh, you know. In one of the most recent post articles, I believe, Carlos Beltran says, yeah, uh, we stole signs, but within the rules, whatever that means. Take it with a grain of salt. And to pick up where Rich left off, I would ban all technology from the dugout, and that includes access to it, no going back to the clubhouse. Uh, if need be, you have a league official seal the doors, and that seal only gets broken uh, unless the player is injured and needs medical attention or after the game. Or I, I guess a pitcher's taken out of the game and he wants to go take a shower. You know, you know, everyone's going to come up with exceptions, but maybe you have to go that far. You know, something always starts with a good idea, and then other people pick up on it. 
and then it becomes a trend, and then trends evolve. And, and you know, eventually down the, down the road, uh, these trends get perverted. You know, so, and I don't mean that in an obscene sense, obviously, but that's the way it goes. That's the evolution of things. Uh, but, Sam, you nailed it. You know, you have to be savvy. You have to be on top of it. You have to be smarter than the average bear, and you have to look out for these things. Uh, stealing signs is as old as baseball itself. Uh, you just have to be, you know, better at delivering and, and, and disguising, you know, and detecting for that matter. Uh, you know, Carlos Beltran was... Uh, educating his teammates over his last couple of years, and you know who's tipping pitches and, and etc. into that nature. Uh, but most definitely, once you incorporate technology, uh, I think that's where it crosses the line. Where it crosses the line, I think it's very simple. I think there's no debating that. You know, but if it's mannerisms, if it's tendencies on the field, you know, if it's Sheer, sheer stupidity on the opponent's part, so be it. Uh, you know, peeking back at the catcher, there's consequences for all that. Uh, and that's the human element of the game that I love that they're trying to uh, extinguish from the game. Uh, you know, this game is not about, it's certainly not a robotic game, and that's what they're trying to turn it into uh, a, a complete extermination of the human element out of this game is something I'm not looking forward to with any measure of uh, delight, let's just say. And and you also brought up Manfred. This is the end of my rant. Rob Manfred, uh, this man is indeed the phantom menace. I, I think he's going to try his best to make this just go away with as minimal punishment as possible, to be truthful. That's my mood today. Uh, tomorrow I might think with more clarity and think that he's going to do the right thing. But you know, having this same man implement Order 66 upon minor league baseball, well, that's probably why I think he's up to no good. Uh, and I'm not sure which direction this is going to go. It's really going to be fascinating uh, to, to watch how it all un- unfolds, excuse me. Um, and before we move to the Mets, let's go around like, like this. Um, the Altuve effect, uh, if you will, John. I'm, I'm wondering, like, has anybody here, and I'll start with you, John, listened to ask, uh, Houston Sports Radio over the last week? Because obviously in this day and age we have access on radio.com to all that stuff. So I, I, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, I've been such a fan of Altuve, and I've, I've thought he's in many ways underrated, especially after that famous uh, – Mike Francesa, you know, he's not one of the best players in the game, but, uh, you know, everybody's going to have their eyes on these these ballplayers that have flourished in in Houston going forward. And it's going to be – it's really going to be fascinating because Altuve has been so explosive for his size, and I personally don't want anything to take away from, you know, his – how great he's been. I um I think nice people and good people, <clears throat> or at least people that per uh, that put themselves out there as good people. I mean, do we really know any of these guys personally? You know, uh, I think that the 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 bright lights w- will be spared. So I think that I don't think Altuve's 
reputation will be stained. I think if you're going to look at somebody's reputation who who will would be stained through this, and be it fair or unfair, it would be somebody like Alex Bregman. And I only say that because Bregman, and I'm not saying this as a bad thing, but Bregman is a cocky sob. Okay, and I, and like I said, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I don't think it was a bad thing when Matt Harvey was a cocky sob. Bregman is good, and he knows it. Uh, I think if, I think if if they're going to turn their ire towards players, I think it would be Bregman much sooner than it would be Altuve, just for that reason. And I'm not saying it's fair, but I'm saying that I think if you're going to look at somebody, if somebody's going to be the focal point, I think it's I think it would be um, Bregman rather than Altuve. And I just want to bring in one more point about the whole video thing about going into the clubhouse and watching video, because it's a fair point. I, I think that it is very nuanced when it comes to that, but I also think that, that baseball is going to be looking more at the immediacy of the signs, of get, knowing what pitch is coming before it comes. I, think, I don't know if, if going back to the clubhouse and maybe sensing trends uh, in terms of tipping pitches a pitcher that, that uh, rolls the ball in his glove before off-speed pitches. I don't think anything like that is what they're looking at. I think it's the immediacy of the information that they're getting, knowing what's coming before it comes with the, uh, with the advent, uh, with the video technology that's out there. I don't think that's going to be – I don't know how much – of an advantage you would get by running into the clubhouse, noticing something and then running back or 50, even 15 seconds later and noticing something. I don't think that that's what they're going to look at. And I'm not sure that's something they should look at. Cause I don't know really how much of an advantage you glean from that. And also if you've been, you know, if you've been to ballparks and arenas, you know that, that there's a feed that comes in live into the, into media rooms that they don't see on TV for another 15 seconds. And I think as long as you limit the access in the clubhouse to that delayed feed rather than that live feed, then I think you're okay. So I think, I do think there is a slight difference when it comes to that in terms of, uh, in terms of video. So I, I just, I just wanted to make that point. And then the other thing I'll say too, and nobody's mentioned it and I'm glad nobody's mentioned it, but I just want to put it out there. Don't take the trophy away. Don't put any asterisks on 2017 because it's way too much of a slippery slope. I don't like asterisks. Let's not let's not have any. I don't know if I don't know if you guys agree with me, but that's just how I feel. Well, I mean, let's talk to the 1919 Cincinnati Reds. You know what I mean? Like, I I agree with you. Let's not take that trophy away. Nobody took that trophy away from from that year. You know, nobody was like the White Sox right. should have won. Well, sure, sure they have. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they wouldn't have. Uh, so, and, and speaking of which, here's another thing, and this is where it becomes really nuanced, too, and going to Rich next. Um, like, like, let's, break, let's break, like, a specific moment down. And you wonder, so they know the pitch is coming, but they don't know where the pitch is going necessarily unless that's what they find out was part of, of the, the communication of the sign stealing. Um, so, you know, like, Aroldis Chapman, uh, he hung that fastball up to Jose Altuve, 
and he hit it, <laughs> you know, out to go to the World Series. So, you know, like, at, at some point, it's it's still about proper execution, and, you know, that was not a good pitch. And whether or not Jose Altuve knew it was coming, whether or not he knew where it was in the strike zone, you know, they're still making the pitch. And that and, and going back to the video that, that John Boy pointed out, that's what ended up happening and Evan Gaddis was out. Do you think that do you think that maybe that that goofy look on Chapman's face um was because he thought that Altuve knew what was coming? I think the goofy look was, oh my god, I just threw a fastball to somebody's chest <laughs> because he's really short. Yeah. Well, that's like, what, and that's what we thought. That's what we thought it was. But maybe, you know, maybe now that we're talking about this, and you brought that up, it's just something that came to my mind. Maybe, maybe, maybe he had that stupid look on his face because he he thought the sign was stolen or the not sign was stolen because fastballs are no bangs on the uh, on the garbage can. And can I be on record as as saying I thought that shit eating bridge was my favorite part of the entire moment? <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely tremendous. loved it. <laughs> But Rich, what do you, what do you um, are you there? Are you all right? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree are with you. you. I, I, no, I, I um, I agree with what you said. I I think even if you have the sign, you still have to hit the ball. And Altuve, he might have known it was coming if if that's the case. He still had to hit the ball over the fence. Not many people on the planet can do that. And um, so you know, again, I'm not trying to make excuses because if if it turns out that the Astros were violating a rule by using technology to systemically steal signs, over not over a game, but over the course of a long period of time, it is wrong. And I, I can't believe I'm actually quoting Joe Torre, because the, don't, don't you just have a warm, fuzzy feeling knowing Joe Torre is on the case? Yikes. Um, <laughs> I mean, my God. You know, he talked about it being a stain on the game of baseball. You're a stain on the game of baseball, dude, but okay, that's beside the point. Um, but the thing is, it it would be a stain on the game of baseball. If if it turns out after an investigation that this is something that the organization adopted, that it was, you know, from the top to the bottom, and they went out and won the World Series, you know, that's pretty bad. I mean, that's the equivalent of of the book written by the, the former referee there, the guy who ended up going to jail, who said that the NBA was systemically fixing games. And, um... It, it looks really bad for the sport, and if it turns out that that's the case, no, you don't asterisk it. You don't do that, but it it is a big deal. So I think both can be true. I think it can be true that this is a. If it turns out this is what we what it could be, that it's a really bad thing for the game. Something major needs to happen, and it is a stain on the game that the game doesn't need right now. But also, it's true that sign stealing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win because you still have to hit the ball. You still have to, you, you have no control over where the ball goes when it leaves your bat. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's a golden ticket to winning the world series. So I, I think in this case, both things are true. Fair point. Fair point, Mike. Wow. That was a lot of stuff right there. Uh, I don't know where to pick up, you know, as far as Chapman, Sometimes dismay manifests itself in different ways. I guess it just wound up being a smirk in his uh, situation. Pitchers and catchers, batters, 
you know, a pitcher's job is to keep hitters off balance. So if a batter knows ahead of time whether he's going to be facing a fastball or something off speed, that's half the battle. And that's the that's the great chunk of information they're they're seeking. They want to know if they're dealing with something off speed or if they're coming at them with velocity. Uh, to me, uh, in my experience in talking with people, that's the biggest thing. Uh, they don't necessarily need to know slide or curve, ball change. No, they just want to know fastball off speed. Uh, and, and if you know they have the patience in the batter's box, they can do something. And if they know fastball is coming, well, they can, you know, jack themselves up and be ready for it. At the same time, you know, you brought up Altuve and his home run. Uh, sometimes, you know, again, this is the beauty of baseball. For as much as you want to cheat, the beauty of baseball always shines through. Sometimes, you know, pitchers are coerced into throwing a hitter's pitch and vice versa. You know, sometimes pitchers coerce batters into swinging at their pitch. So, you know, cheat as they may, I don't see teams winning 125 games a season because they have this distinct advantage over everyone else. You know, uh, I think the Yankees and the Astros and uh, the Twins were the third American League team to win 100 games. You know, I think that's a result of having some really bad competition. Not so much that they've gained an uh, an advantage through analytics uh, or or cheating or anything of the like. Uh, So, I don't know. I'm just rambling now. It's going to be really fascinating to see how it all uh, uh, breaks down, excuse me. Um, You know, it's... I, I, I... I hope that it happens soon or at least before spring training one way or the other, just because it's like, I I just, I think both baseball and uh, the players as well as the teams will all agree that they need to get this out of the way, at least by February. Um, If not before the year begins, Uh, maybe even try to figure it out before the, the end of the fiscal year. I mean, I understand investigations take a long time, but I feel like this should be pretty straight-laced. Um, you know, uh, let's let, and we, it's 8.30 now, so we're going we're gonna to wrap up this after this, this whole thing. But, I mean, like, how long do you think this is going to take, John? Uh, you would, I think it's going to take a while. You would hope it would get wrapped up by February or even Christmas. But uh, I definitely think they would want to have this wrapped up by spring training, by day one of spring training. Uh, but I don't know how competent this is going to be, and I don't know how how much if, – if there's a paper trail, then what are the Astros – what are the lengths the Astros are going to take to get rid of that paper trail? Uh, and that's, that's the thing that's going to – they might be doing it as we speak because they know – that whatever punishment comes down for this, if there's a if there's a paper trail, that that punishment is going to be exponential. So there's going to be some hard drive cleaning and some document shredding going on in the offices of the Houston Astros because they're going to be like, man, we don't want to we don't want to give back those draft picks that we got when the Cardinals hacked into our system. 
Yo, they're trying to they're trying to erase their uh, their Amazon account right now, uh, where they hired that where, where they they hired they uh, bought that spy camera. <laughs> right, right. Oh, Bezos right now. They're gonna place a call. They're gonna place a call to BNH on 34th and 9th and say, hey, let's destroy our receipts, please. Please, I we I don't know if we can. Uh, anyway, um, I'm Jewish. I can make that joke, but anyway, um, <laughs> the. Uh, all right, so where were we going to go next? Should we go to awards, guys? I mean, you know, obviously we've we've talked about these guys. Uh, uh, Pete Alonso, who won the Rookie of the Year at the beginning of the week, and Jacob uh, Jacob Degrom, who won the uh, second straight Cy Young Award. I mean, you know, we we basically we we put this is one always one of the po- uh, the positive things we have to talk about week in and week out starting in spring training of 2019 were these two fellows. John, what more can we say? Uh, you know, let's, let's hope that uh, Pete Alonso gets some MVP votes next year. I think that would be a nice step forward. Uh, and in terms of DeGrom, just unbelievable. Unbelievable after the, after the very mediocre start he had in April to come back and win back-to-back Cy Young Awards, I think is is awesome. I think we have made way too much of the fact that both awards were won with 29 votes instead of a perfect 30 votes because they don't make the trophy any bigger for a unanimous vote. So let's just say that 29 and 1 is really impressive. And for DeGrom to win uh, by a margin of 29 and one with after the start he had is probably more impressive than, uh, or just as impressive as what he did in 2018. So congratulations to both. And I would also say that a rookie of the year with the historic season that Alonzo had, and with the, a back-to-back Cy Young award winner, there's no reason, no good reason, no excuse why that roster can't be shaped around those two to make a legitimate playoff run, not a run at the second wild card either. Yeah, I agree. Let's get that division, man. Um, I also wanted to throw it out there, just in case you didn't know, that he was seventh. Pete Alonso was seventh in MVP voting. That's that's amazing. That's uh, great. Let's get him in the top five next year. And Rich, uh, Jacob Degrom was number ten. Cracked the top ten, and most valuable player. <laughs> and certainly, I as great as. He is. Would you still call Jacob Degrom the most valuable player? Would you call Jacob Degrom the most valuable player on the New York Mets? Well, that's a tough one because he's clearly the best at his craft, um, evidenced by the two Cy Youngs. But he, he, you know, this, you know where I'm going next. He, he performs once every five games, and that's an age-old argument. I remember during the broadcast, Tim McCarver used to talk about that back in the old days. You know, can a pitcher be an MVP or not? And um, it's an interesting discussion. You're, like I said, you're contributing once every five days. So on its face, it's hard to say you're an MVP. But on the other hand, if you, if you are so, so dominant and you change the culture of your ball club because the team, you know, the team is just different because they have you, and you're a, you know, you you keep winning streaks going. You stop losing streaks. You could single-handedly do that more than any other player, which is a case he made that maybe a pitcher can be an MVP. So I, I don't think there's a there's a right answer to that question. It's a matter of opinion. 
Um, but I want to throw one more thing in that kind of irks me a little bit. Um, I saw some traffic out there in, the, in social media about how, well, the Mets had the Rookie of the Year and they had the Cy Young Award winner, and they didn't make the postseason, so that's bad. That that's really really bad. I, I you know that that really gets under my skin because that's not bad. The, the Mets had a decent season. They were 86 and 76. They had a good year. They fell short of the goal. Yes, they fell short of the goal of making the postseason, but they made strong progress from 2018. They had two individual award winners. So to say that that to take two individual award winners like this person did on, on Twitter, uh, one of the, the writers, I don't know who we're talking about, and to take that and then turn it around as a negative on the team, come on. come Really, just come on. So, you know, I, I think it's great that they had two award winners. I think it's, I'm very, you know, much happier with the fact they had a good season, in my opinion. And now they just have to keep going. That They have to – they just have to get over that hump. So – I agree with what John said. You know, take these two guys, build around them, build around them for years to come. That's what's next. But I think taking away from it by somehow turning two very positive things into a team negative, I thought was was in very poor taste. You know, be, uh, before we before I ask you, Mike, about that, I, I want to say I agree with you, Rich, and that. You know, we're we're not talking like this is 2010 or or uh, 2009 would actually is a better better example, um, or other times where you know like there wasn't any action after they missed the playoffs. You know, there was action here. Um, you know, they didn't come say you know we're going to give them one more like we're we're, we're basically making like when they made Jerry Manuel lame duck or or something like that they won six games and responded by firing the manager obviously we know that Brody didn't bring Mickey on um and that it seemed as if he really needed to either win the world series or at least make a deep push to really uh uh save his job but you know something may be different as as and and we're going to get to what Brody actually like said recently uh uh later on but um you know as much as like I, we still want to criticize the well bonds and Brody obviously didn't do a perfect job but right now I think he won himself the benefit of the doubt uh and obviously we now need to see what he's going to do in this second offseason it's a very very important next few months for for Brody and the New York Mets and um it, it it was an exciting season. Yeah, we we fell short. There was a little disappointment, but I you know you just did not see that August coming whatsoever based off the July and uh, based off of the June and and you just you gotta you gotta appreciate that. And sometimes you don't always get what you want in life, and that's one of the reasons why I'm a Mets fan is because we can sometimes take solace. And I was looking, and I'm going to throw a name out here that we're going to be discussing later uh, regarding uniform number 38. Uh, sometimes you got to appreciate the Chris Capuanos of the world. And that's what us Mets fans are able to do, Mets legend Chris Capuano. But uh, without further ado, I'll, I'll go over to Mike about this. So I think it's pretty clear to say that most people are coming around to right now in the game there is no better pitcher than Jacob DeGrom. So, if we 
currently possess the best pitcher in baseball, either leagues, doesn't that make him the most valuable player on this team? Yeah, perhaps. Uh, like Rich said, good question. Uh, individually, I, I will say that the man is just utterly do- dominant over his last two seasons. 64 starts. Uh, he's allowed the opposition two runs or less in 51 of those starts. That's that's almost 80%. That's pretty dominant. Uh, special. Uh, you can't help but feel badly for him, in a sense, because almost the full third of his career starts have gone for no decisions. But, you know, in the world of analytics, wins and losses are no longer uh, as important as people once emphasized. Uh Rich brought up that person on Twitter, and I would only say everything needs to be kept in context. Uh, you know, Tom Seaver, 69 was in, in and of itself a, a, a miracle, but after 73 and definitely by 75, Tom Seaver was badgering the front office for offensive upgrades. He, he was badgering them for a power hitter. He wanted... Uh, I believe his name was Gary Masters. Uh, you know, uh, amongst other conflicts he had with the front office, uh, and, and he never got it. Uh, when Dwight Gooden won the award in '85, you know, Frank Cashin was in the middle of, you know, constructing a monster. They were fresh off of acquiring Gary Carter. Uh, Bob Ojeda would come, you know, so they were adding all around Dwight Gooden. R.A. Dickey played on a team that the front office had no business building around. Just the opposite. They were still in the middle of stripping it down. And here this guy comes along and has a Cy Young Award season. Fast forward, Jacob DeGrom, he wins back-to-back Cy Youngs. And, you know, in a sense, Rich, I would have to agree with that individual insofar as the front office definitely needs to do more right now and, and maximize these guys' careers best they can. Uh, and that will be nothing more or nothing less than a front office push. You know, and the off season lays ahead and, and we'll see what they do. But if they half-ass it, you know, Met fans, the older you are, the more grumpy you are because the more you understand. You know, all that anger and f- frustration and angst just continually gets layered and layered and layered and layered and we're quick to throw it all back in their face over every little thing. You know, now what kind of expectations do we have going into this off season? I don't know and I'm very curious. I will only say that attendance is still – it was up over 2018, but it's still down since 2015. And I question their willingness to put that extra front office push or that extra 
you know, oomph into this off season. All right, so, and that's a great segue, as we all love segues over here. Um, the off season. You know, I, I didn't even think about uh, this when writing it up, but a lot of people have been encouraging the Mets to, with the money coming off for 2021, go for it regarding the luxury tax. And I, I'm not about to pretend to be an expert on all the little details and first-time offenders and yada, yada, yada. Um, just, I, I, I don't know whether I should ask this with a straight face. But do you think that the Wilpons may surprise us and actually just go for it? And and in, in that, and we've documented regarding whether or not – forgetting about whether or not Bryce Harper would have been the right choice uh, uh, considering, uh, you know, what we've talked about, his effect on the Nationals and look like look at them now. They just won a World Series. But, uh, Philly didn't even make it in their first uh, – make the playoffs. So – um, but we also talked about how much money got spent by fans right after Bryce Harper signed that mega deal on the Philadelphia Phillies. And that there, there's just – you go for the luxury – you go over the luxury tax right now. You're going to make that back rather quickly. But, again, I'm not a baseball accountant. I'm not the Mets accountant. I don't know what's going on. But it just – it you know – Again, using that word nuance, I understand that a lot of what goes on behind the scenes we don't know about is very nuanced. But it, it seems that the economics of the way my dumbass just spelled it out seems to make sense. Right, John? Yeah, it does make sense. You spend money to make money. And if the Mets went out, and said, okay, you know what? We're going to act like a New York market. And quite frankly, I don't think they need to do all that much to assert themselves in the division and assert themselves as, the, as a New York-based franchise, as a franchise that plays in the number one market in the country. And how long have I been saying this? How long have you been saying this? How long have we all been saying this? Too long. That's how. I mean, we're... We're, we're, we're clear made off. The Mets are clear of that, or so we think. But history tells us that they, the, the Wilpons, have opted for austerity. And, and at first it was out of necessity because of Bernie Madoff. But now it's more about, hey, well, you know, it worked so well before. I mean, look at what we did in 2015 and – we acquired those pieces, those expensive pieces, for just two months, and we, and we made a surprise charge into the World Series. That's the way we could do it every year, and I think that's the way the Wilpons think about it. I don't think they're ever going to make a splash in the offseason again, honestly, because I feel like they're, they're, they're saying, well, why are we going to spend – and I'm just going to throw out a number. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about in terms of whether he's going to get this amount of money. But they're going to say, why are we going to spend $28 million a year on Anthony Rendon, even though he would probably make the difference between a division title and the second wild card? Why are we going to do that 
when we can just not spend the money and still make the second wild card and 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 go about it that way. And I think now that this isn't just a Wilpon problem. I think this is a baseball problem where you have a few teams that are going to go for it, luxury tax be damned, and I think you have a bunch of teams that are saying, well, you know, hey, listen, we're more of a business than a baseball team anyway, so let's just do what's good for the bottom line, and if we make it to the playoffs, hey, great, it's like found money. I think, you know, this is just my opinion, I think the Wilpon, I think the 86 and 76 year the Mets just had with the great finish that they had and Dominic Smith ending the season on a walk-off home run, they love that. They love that because they've got, they got the type of pennant race they wanted. They got the type of pennant race that brings you back in. Maybe they would have wanted it a little sooner. Maybe they would have wanted the team to get hot in May or June rather than August. And then they would have gotten more money all season. But 86 and 76 with a rookie of the year and, and a back-to-back Cy Young Award winner, I think that's going to bring in enough ticket sales for them to be satisfied. So my answer is no. I don't think the Wilpons are going to surprise us. And if you want a, an, a, uh, a recent news item to kind of affirm that sad belief, consider this. There are three groups that are financing the new New York Islanders arena in Belmont. Two of those, uh, two of those groups have paid their money towards the building of the arena. One has not. Any guesses as to which corporate entity has not yet put their money in the new Islanders arena? Sterling Bolt. Horshack. Horshack, you have the floor. The Wilpons? And you're right. That would be Sterling Equities. And by the way, the article, the Forbes article that outlined this for us said that attempts to email Sterling Equities via the email address that was on the website bounced back. Not wasn't returned, but bounced back. What a professional organization we have here, gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, and that's not saying we shouldn't be fans, but I'm just saying, listen, don't get your hopes up. Yeah, 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 yeah. You are listening to a Metzian podcast. Uh, to reset at 8:51, and we are so thankful you do. If you want to join in the conversation, and uh, we're gonna we're gonna start trying to push that a, a little bit more. Try to get uh, you listeners involved in the conversation. Six four six seven eight seven one nine one nine. Give us a call whenever you get a chance, whether it's this episode or another. Nuance, noun, a subtle difference in or shade of meaning, expression or sound. The nuances of facial expression and body language is the example they give. The example I am going to give, before I pass it over to you, is the underdog shirt. You've got to believe. The Wilpons, unfortunately, and you know, it's, it's both fortunate and unfortunate, but they understand the brand they have. And they understand the power of that brand. And because of that, because... 
they half-ass it, they're constantly putting them in position to be that brand. It's very disheartening, yet you got to believe. It's, they know how to tug on our heartstrings. Well, they do. And it also gives them the, um, lack of a better term, the out. You know, to say, well, we don't spend like the guys across town because we all know that their model is not sustainable, right, Fred Wilpont? Um, but so it also gives them the out to, hey, hey, fans, rally behind us because, you know, we're not the big bad team in the Bronx. We, we do things in a more frugal fashion. We're like, you know, the working man's team. You know, you need to support us because, you know, we're – were the good salt of the earth kind of a franchise. So you're right. That is their brand. That is um, the way they market the team. Um, and and that's the way the fans feel about it. I mean, over all these years, you know, Mike, uh, you, I think you, John, and I have been around for quite a while in Metsville, and um, that's kind of what it is. I mean, that's the way – that's the Mets are the working man's team. You, you watch the videos, you know, from 1962, those, those shows about – uh, the Mets are in last place. They can only go up. You know the one I'm talking about. And and but that's the way they've always been packaged. And while it might be a bit more subtle now, it's it's very much there. And so yeah, so the underdog shirts, all of that. Let's play that to our advantage. Well, but then you get some people who push back on that and say, you're still a New York team and you don't op- operate like one. So help us understand that part of it. You know. So I don't know. Is the whole thing um, a way to go about? operating the way they do and, and, you know, a big ruse to distract people. And and as John said, keep people interested. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. Um, I saw, I'm seeing reports the last couple of days that, you know, you guys have seen them as well. And for the reason it came out with the whole Islander thing, that maybe the Wilpons are in deep financial shit. And I know, you know, Mike, you've talked about that quite a bit and, you know, maybe more more so than, than, uh, then we are led to believe. So what does that mean, you know, tying this all back together? Well, does that mean that instead of building around this team that is so close and, and doing what's necessary to push them over the top into the postseason, instead of doing that, are they going to give us some stupid slogan, you know, and say, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're the underdog and, and, you know, rally around us and all that kind of thing, and, and instead of doing what it need what needs to be done. So, that's the pessimistic look at it. I certainly hope that, that none of that is true. Um, but, you know, some of the reality is, you know, they're, they, for all intents, for all uh, observable purposes, I should say, they haven't reinvested David Wright's money. They haven't reinvested Cespedes' money. That's what common knowledge seems to be. And, but if you keep those guys on the payroll, you know, they're pushing the luxury tax threshold, and we all know they're damn well not going over it. So I don't know. I I think the whole thing comes down to this. I truly don't think we on this podcast know their financial situation. We can only react to what we see. And what we see is that, look what happened a couple days ago. You watch Will Smith, the first big bullpen piece, go off the board to the Braves. Mets were nowhere to be found. Okay. Um, The Mets, we've come to accept that they don't shop in the big store. You know, they shop in the warehouse store. Um, and, and that somehow for a lot of people has become okay. That's the standard operating procedure. And like we've been talking about, it's become okay because that's the Mets or the working man's team and all that kind of stuff. 
So I guess in summary, boys, um, let's see what they do or don't do. But it would be a shame to not take this team that is on the precipice of something perhaps special and not do something with it. I guess that's where I am. Mike, new year, new team, new manager. New manager, yay. I, I'm I'm sorry. I'm going to have to go here, and I'm going to try to make this as brief as possible. In 2015, and this is based on articles in the New York Post, the New York Times, Forbes magazine, and a fourth one fails me at the moment. But these are all sourced you know, of facts that I'm about to deliver. In 2015, they renegotiated or refinanced seven, upwards of $750 million in outstanding debt, okay? We're supposedly at the end of year four. Next year would have been year five. But an exchange on Twitter with Howard Magdal led me to believe or leads me to believe that they are merely paying down the interest, which would explain a lot. As far as banks are concerned, for as long as they have uh, the resources to pay it, which is the team and SNY itself, they will let them just merely get by with paying down the interest on the outstanding sum of $750 million. Now, why do I feel that is true at this moment? Because Fred Wilpon undertook a, a buyback of company stock, okay, and when they did the valuation, Fred Wilpon was expecting a, a value, and this is according to Forbes, that he was expecting a valuation of $2.3 billion. The, the valuation he received was $1.7 billion, which accounts for the $750 million of debt, which I believe is still outstanding. I hope that was brief and as informative as, as possible. And Brody Van Wagenen is merely the new message sender and the new face of this, and a new way of going about them, you know, putting on this show that they're a transformative organization, but behind the scenes, they're still working with the same operating model, is that the Wilpons just are, no, are not in financial position to uh, exert themselves. Um, I, I chose those words just to be kind. They're not in the financial position to exert themselves. They manipulated DeGrom's contract to coincide with the expiration of Cespedes's contract. Right now, all they're doing is playing three-card Monty with money, doling out the same dollars just to different people. Okay? And they have, they have uh, arbitration ahead of them and, and things of that nature. Okay? Wheeler's gone. Don't think they're going to meet his price on an open market, okay? But somehow, some way, Brody's going to try to sell us on this new and improved business plan that calls for spending money a lot more smartly, you know, but at the same time, spending a lot less money, period. Uh, and that's where I stand. Good luck, Carlos Beltran. Yay. And speaking of which, Mike, you always talk about how, you know, you can kind of see the line go down from basically since Frank Cashin left. Uh, and Carlos Beltran really does still fall into that comfort zone. As, as, as much as we've exuded certain levels of optimism as to what Carlos Beltran brings to the table, 
he still falls into the category that you discuss about the Wilpon's comfort zone. Uh, yes, because, you know, going off campus makes them break out in a rash. All their executive hires have been in-house hires of somebody who have been very familiar and friendly with the Wilpons. The exception was Sandy Alderson, and perhaps that was a compromise, as we've all talked about in the past, uh, between the Wilpons and Major League Baseball as to say, here, Fred, take this guy, save yourself from me having to intercede in your business let him keep your organization afloat while you go attend to your financial disaster. Okay, so no, Sandy Alderson was not their hire, okay, because they were undertaking a general manager search that was just utterly fruitless and, quite frankly, just complete folly. Then Major League Baseball made Alderson available to the Mets, and they jumped all over it like flies on a cow patty. Okay, likewise, Beltran, well, no, Callaway was effectively Jeff Wilpon's first managerial hire. Uh, you know, so he's, you know, th- that's the thing. Alderson was the, 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 the stick in the spokes. Uh, now that they're on their own, you know, they revert back to someone they're very, very familiar with. They refuse to go off campus, and they refuse to bring in or infuse new ideas contrary to theirs. I, I heard a, a brilliant CEO uh, once say on a documentary, you know, uh, the best thing you can do for yourself is uh, hire somebody who thinks just completely opposite of you uh, for various reasons, et cetera, et cetera. But no, Sam, now that you bring it up, no, they, they refuse to leave their comfort zone. BBW is, is just friend. And, you know, I've had issue with that since day one. You know, so, no, they refuse, and that's why Chaim Bloom isn't here, uh, because he represented logic and, 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 you know, business sense and baseball acumen, and that's not what they're interested in. They want control, and they want to prove themselves, and they want to be this, you know, alternative universe organization all of a sudden under just control. It's a goddamn mess. Sorry to go there. How can we not? I, you know, it's it's my dad's favorite joke was, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? And that's life, and that's the mess. Life is the mess. So, um, <laughs> uh, John, I'm wondering, is is there anything to the fact that BBW's first managerial hire was a player, with him being a former uh, player agent? That's a great question. You know, it's it's so weird with, with Brody because this is somebody we have no pattern with. This is somebody that in his first off season has thrown a lot of stuff against the wall to see if it's stuck. A lot of spaghetti. And most of that spaghetti fell right to the floor. Robinson Cano, the Keon Broxton trade, Jerry's Familia bringing him back. So you, you look for patterns in baseball people. Like Mike said, people with baseball acumen, you can kind of figure out, okay, this is, this is this person's MO. This is what they're going to do. This is the direction they're going to go in. And they do this because this is the path that they want to take to a championship. With Brody, I don't know what his patterns are. 
it's impossible to figure it out after season one. And I still don't think we know. I don't know. I don't think you can say, well, he traded prospects for Diaz and Cano. So he's liable to do that again. I have no idea. I don't know if he's gun shy. I don't know if he's, um, if um, he's really learned from what he did or, or I don't know. I don't know if he's looking to make that splash. I've always thought though, that with the lack of free agent spending that the Mets usually do and probably will do or will not do, I always thought that the managerial hire was going to be the one to make a splash. And since they didn't want to pay for Girardi, who's making, I thought I read, $11 million over three years, as opposed to the Beltron hire, Three million over three years. Okay, well, you get eight million less of experience, but you still get that splash. You're bringing back a franchise icon. You're bringing back the best center fielder in Mets history. So we can build our ticket selling strategy towards that. It makes me think, just like Mike intimated, that I don't think this is a Brody hire. I think this is a Jeffy hire. I think this is, uh, you know, all of these moves and all of these hires go through Jeffy anyway. You know, Brody is just the uh, the used car salesman who uh, comes out there and is slick and he's got great presentation. He's just the one that delivers the message because he knows how. And that's what Jeffy values. He values the, the three-card Monty as it were, the, the slickness of it, the, the, the message sender, the, the public relations aspect of it all. Everything seems to be geared towards that in one way or another, whether it be a side effect or, or a straight effect. So it very well could be that, that a former player was somebody that they wanted. You know? And I, I don't, you know, as I, and as I've said in the past, I don't really I think once Girardi was off the board and once all the managers that had experience were off the board then it really ceased to matter who the manager was who the pick was because because the front Brody's come out and said the front office is going to be the ones that that hold that are going to make the decisions they're going to make they're going to have a strong hand in putting together the lineups and putting together the rotation and defining roles for players. Guess what, guys? Brody's the manager. And maybe that speaks more to what the, the job roles are for general managers now as they were then. But Brody's the manager. Okay, so guess what? No matter what happens in season one, and this is, again, just the way I feel. No matter what happens in season one, I'm not, I'm not putting this on Beltron. Because all Beltron is is going to be the heat shield that's going to go out and speak to the media every day. And he's going to be the one to take all the bullets for Brody. Brody's managing the team, guys. If I may, Sam, jump in. The way you describe it. Sam, if I may, I'm I'm going to jump in on behalf behalf of uh, Big Red Ruckus, at Big Red Ruckus on Twitter. Uh, I just want to throw his, his take in this real quick. Our take is the Wilpons run the Mets for their own self-actualization with smoke and mirrors since Selig conspired with them to force out Nelson Doubleday at a vicious discount, period. 
just wanted to add that in. Shout out to Big Red Ruckus. Big Red Ruckus. We got to get you on, buddy. Oh, yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I, what, what more needs to John, be said? Good night, everybody. No, well, <laughs> we're getting there. We're getting there. But I was going to say that. It's <laughs> really funny. I've been watching a lot of Carson Clutch lately. So that's funny. If I sing over nine <laughs> seconds, I think we owe the money. So I better not. Um, <laughs> uh, so, John. Um, <laughs> it, oh man, where where was I going to go specifically? I, I, I oh man. Um, okay, with uh, um, from what from what? Oh, Jesus, I just, I just totally spaced. Mike, what what point did you just make? That Brody's managing. We we were all ranting about you know the course of the off season. We got off on a tangent about money and, and you know the background operations of all this, and, and really it's Jeff's operation. And Brody is just the face of it. Brody is Jeff's right. friend. Brody told Jeff, "Say, look, this is what you want. I'll make it happen for you." And this is how it manifests. Oh, I know what I was going to say. John, the way you described it, it sounds like, like a movie. Like they say, they said he couldn't do it. They said he couldn't manage. But, in in you know, or. Like, like, you know, especially considering, like, like he's like handsome Branch Ricky, but I'm shocked. Um, anyway, although Branch Ricky was a pretty Thank, thank you very much. Thank you. Look You're at the welcome. creativity. Look at the creativity. You know, quote unquote, that Brady ran wagon and undertook last off season, or his, you know, supposed creativity in lieu of money. Right. Yeah, monies were exchanged and saved and shifted and whatnot. But you know, in, in lieu of, like I say, a, the front office making that extra oomph to put you over the top, and, and we're not like we're not asking for a lot here. We're, you know. Let, let, let's let's be reasonable about this. We're just looking for you to compliment your core players with with viable, competitive, you know, uh, uh, contention type personalities. That's it. You know, nothing more, nothing less. But but make that effort and and, and don't come in with the uh, man. This is that one guy I like to make fun of so much. Uh, I believe it was in 2000, the shortstop. De Sarcina, is that the guy I'm after? Bordick. Mike Bordick. Mike Bordick. Okay, that's <laughs> the one. You know, don't come at me with Mike Bordick. You understand? Do something Do something with <laughs> conviction. Do something that's going to make me believe that you want to be doing this instead of you just, you know, putting lipstick on a pig. Make more of an effort. Make more of a concerted effort. Make more. Make, well, do that's... something that we can believe. Well, that's, that's a great, I, I, a great I just, point. I just want like, to say, like how, I, I, just, I just want to say that I, I hope that Taryn Cooper is not listening to this podcast because once she hears Mike Bordick, she's going to throw garbage cans out the window. Uh, you know Mike, what? Can you I, put a, I hope you she's put a shout out on Twitter. <laughs> put put a shout out on Twitter. We've gone to the Mike Bordick section of the podcast. <laughs> so, segue, um, segue. We need a segue. <laughs> Well, what I was going to segue, we got to, we, we haven't heard from Rich in a little bit, and I was going to going to make this uh, this joke about Jeff making a poor joke, uh, um, 
how Jeff is would would be in the meeting with Carlos. Carlos goes, I can let bygones be bygones and put everything aside in order for us to win. And Jeff can said Jeff says same here. And if you don't win, I'm going to break your knees. Just kidding. Well, did you see Hot Stove this week when Beltron said um, something about 2016? And he smiled and said, "I struck out." So um, right. <laughs> It's a similar, you know, kind of humor, but at least Beltron, to me, that meant a lot because at least he's come to grips with it, and he's kind of asking the fans to, you know, let bygones be bygones, and hopefully nobody's kneecaps right. get broken. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, as I listen to you guys, and obviously I've been muting because I'm coughing over here, but, um, but I, you know, we don't want lipstick on the pig. You know, we don't want. Um, we don't want more Mike Bordicks. You know, I, I agree with everything you're saying. They have to take the splash. They have to push this team over the top, like I said earlier. And my fear is the same thing as your fear, that they're just going to push people around and not really move forward. They're going to, you know, smoke and mirror their way to a bunch of moves that might be, quant, you know, from a quantity perspective, like, oh, look, the Mets are very active. You know, they traded this guy. They picked up this guy. They, they shuffled this one over there and that one over there. But un- until they do the right thing to really address what has to be addressed, and that might, in, in you know, might entail spending money. Until we see that, right? I-, I think we have a right to be skeptical, and that's where I think we all are. And I'll finish. We're, we're going to finish the day uh, with this. That, um, and, and it's something I think Mike just made the point about uh, John. The fact that. Like Jeff had to kind of exert himself, had had to put himself out there to show that, you know, he was okay with something like Joanna Cespedes after that trade went down. You know, I just remember him being like, you know, he he leaned, he looked over at me and I said, pull the, you know, make the trade, pull the uh, pull the trigger. Um, and it's like we don't necessarily need to hear that. You know, if 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 this was just a normal thing, then he wouldn't have to to go out there anytime they make something that that is contrary to the norm. You're talking about you're talking about Jeff going out there. Right, Jeff Jeff Wilfon right. specifically going out there and being like, "Yeah, I was okay with uh, you know, the Johannes Tespers trade." Right. Yeah. And and that's funny, isn't it? It's it's uh when when something like that happens when when a trade is successful, uh then then those quotes are out there, aren't they? Oh, yeah, I was I was the one that said pull the trigger. But when uh, when something doesn't happen, I mean, did you did you hear um, did you ever hear Jeff Wilpon say, yeah, I was the one that pulled that told Brody to pull the trigger on the uh, on the Edwin Diaz deal? Did you have we heard that? Yeah, right. No, right. I don't think we have. And guess what? When Brody gets fired in, in three four years, that's going to be the first thing we hear from Jeffy. Well, you know, we we were reviewing all of uh, you know Brody's work in a, uh, in, a in a in a vacuum and. Uh, once uh, the Edwin Diaz trade was made, you know that that's when we started to wonder and this and that because you know that's going to happen, right? You know that's going <laughs> to it's the trades that don't work are going to be Brody's fault, and the trades that do work, yeah, I pulled the trigger on him. Typical, Ugh. typical. But Jesus. I but but yeah, I do think I mean yes, Jason the trades that don't work are Brody's fault. <laughs> right. And without further ado, uh, that uh, wraps up the modern-day edition of uh, a Metsian podcast, episode number 38. And episode number 38 will segue over to uniform number 38. 
but I do want to give a little bit of a shout out to uh, 1938, which was uh, the year that Larry McPhail took over the Brooklyn Dodgers. And uh, Johnny Vandermeer pitched two straight no-hitters, one of which was at the first uh, baseball game in the New York City Major League Baseball region. So uh, they, they weren't yet the winning Dodgers, but uh, they, they started, they, they laid a lot of groundwork that, that season. Um, and so before I, I'm going to pull up the numbers right now, but Mike, if you want to say anything about the 1938 season. Let's go Dodgers. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't 1938 uh, the year of the first night game? Right, right. So it was it was at Woods Field, and Johnny Vandermeer pitched his second straight no hitter. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, Co- uh, uh, Mr. Coppinger. Yes. Oh, 1938. Oh, I got to come up with something about 1938. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't. I didn't get that far in all the repeats of uh, Ken Burns's baseball yet. So I don't know if I really have anything for 1938. Wasn't that uh, no, Wasn't that just, Jimmy Fox's best year, or was that 1932? That's a great question. Um, I'll have to look the, the Jimmy Fox up, and we'll come up. I'll, I'll come up with that when we. Uh, I'm sure Jimmy Fox had a great year in both of those seasons. Um, yeah, no, it's just we, we've kind of uh, uh, side, uh, uh, sidled out of doing the, uh, the 19th, you know, the, the, the uh, legacy, if you will. But uh, having the uh, uh, second, you know, two straight no-hitters in the first uh, night baseball, I thought that was uh, uh, something that I, I wanted to mention. Uh, um, and I'll probably also bring up Leo DeRocher in the next episode. But uh, number 38, it, this, guys, this is a really interesting list. And I'm not sure where to land on who specifically becomes the all-time great 1938, uh, all-time great number 38, because Big Red Ruckus just tweeted at us about 1938. I'll get back to you, Mr. Big Red Ruckus. But, guys, uh, I'll start with you, Mike, if you're looking at the list. I mean, I may, I may even go as far as, say, uh, Dave Malicki. And there's some infamous names on here for sure. Well, and, 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 can't, and of course, we mentioned Skip Lockwood, who has been on the show. Well, I want to leave some, some for everybody, but I'll stick with you, Dave Malicki. Of course, he won that first game of the Subway Series, what, in 97 against the Yankees. So he'll always be known for that. I believe it was the first Subway Series game between the two uh, when they started into league play. And, uh, you know, Skip Lockwood, I'll leave that up to uh, Rich, uh, but he was definitely, uh, you know, during those days, easily one of my top, you know, four or five players on the team. Uh, easy, easy. I, I, In fact, I love Skip Lockwood. We had him on the on the podcast. Uh, uh, he told us uh, so much about his playing days and, and describing his book. And, uh, you know, Roger Craig, the former uh, Brooklyn Dodger, both in Brooklyn and L.A., went out to pitch with the Mets uh, for two seasons and led the league in losses both years. Oh, poor guy. But Roger Craig, uh, very influential man as a manager later in his career. So uh, I'll leave the rest up to you guys. Uh, Rich, go ahead. All right. Well, I've got to go with Lockwood because he came on the show. And also when the Mets had um, some pretty bad teams, in the mid-70s they were okay, but toward the late 70s Lockwood performed adequately and, and well. You know, having him in the back end there to close out the games, of course they didn't win very many. 
but Skip was very reliable. And when he came on the show, and I've read his book since, or I actually read it a little bit before and since, he's so intellectual, such a student of the game, that, you know, Mike, I don't know about you, but I remember Lockwood as, again, as, as a reliable, good reliever on what was generally some pretty bad teams for the most part. I didn't realize the degree to which he was a student of the game and, and the degree of his intellect until we had him on the show and then reading his book. And then if you notice, you guys probably remember, when they do the uh, they interview the former players during the games, he was interviewed this year. And just listening to him talk about the game of baseball, he's a fascinating man, so... Um, so Lockwood, but also I want to go somewhere else here. I want to go to Rick Aguilera because have you ever thought about if it weren't for the comeback in the bottom of the 10th of game six of 86, that Rick Aguilera would probably be a curse word in Metsville. Um, you know, let us not forget he's on the mound in the top of the 10th and he gives up the runs. Um, and he gave up Dave Henderson's home run. He gave up uh, the hit that I believe Buckner actually uh, drove in the second run in that inning to put the Red Sox ahead by two. And we forget about that. We forget about the fact that Aguilera, who was very good, and I've always liked Rick Aguilera, and he had a very good career, um, but we forget about that. If the Mets don't ha- pull that, that rabbit out of the hat in the bottom of the 10th, Rick Aguilera's name is – is is infamous in Mets history. He would be the guy who gave up two runs to the Red Sox in the top of the 10th, and, and Mets fans probably would have never forgiven him for it. Um, and if you remember, when you see the, the clips of um, you see the clips of the bottom of the 10th in the celebration when Knight crosses the plate and Buddy Harrelson's going nuts, the person, next time you see it, watch Aguilera in that clip. They show him pretty much immediately after Knight crosses the plate, and he's got his head down, and he's shaking his hands like you could almost see what's coming out of his head. Thank God. Thank God that I don't have to carry this around the rest of my life. Um, so that – Aguilera was someone I had to mention when I saw the list for that reason. And, again, the sad part is damn good reliever, good with the Mets. It's just if it were not for that inning, what that man's life might have been and the way Met fans would have viewed him. So – um, and then finally, I'll just mention Victor Zambrano. Um, you know, we all know uh, he was supposed to be fixed in five minutes. Speaking right? of curse words in Mets history. Right, right. Um, Victor Zambrano, we'll fix him in five minutes. Well, you know what? Uh, you didn't. And But I feel bad for him. Do you remember the game, the last game we ever threw for the Mets? He was on the mound, right? Uh, he's, he started the game, I think it was 2005. In fact, I'm sure it was. And he throws a pitch, and on that pitch, the second out of the inning is recorded as a fly ball. He starts running off the mound, and I remember, I, f- I forget, it might have been, um, it might have been Gary Cohen, it might, I think it was Keith actually, who said, two outs, Victor, two outs, get your head in the game, and he just kept running right to the dugout, and it turned out that he had, you know, blown out his arm on that pitch, and um, and it's sad, you know, the guy obviously wanted to do well, of course, um, but. It just didn't work out for him in New York, and, and it is a curse word, as, as we said. So those are those are my couple of Mets I wanted to comment on. Along with Scott Kazmir, I think Kazmir Zambrano are the, the, the goddamn, if you will. <laughs> right. Um, John, I, I, I want to go to you. Obviously, uh, I'm sure you have a lot of things to say about all the players we've already mentioned, but I want to throw – 
uh, a name out to you on this list that, speaking of quite possible uh, curse words, uh, but I just, I lost it. Um, yeah. Sam Brano. But anyway, um, <laughs> it, it's interesting. I think what I remember about this, uh, uh, just looking looking at this list, I'm, I'm trying, there was like a specific name that jumps out at me. Hmm. But I'll, I'll throw Fernando Nieve out to you. Um, ah. I, I think... <laughs> no, you know why I laugh because because I, I I laugh because you know I had some names in my head that I was thinking of. Of course, I was thinking of Maliki because that game that he pitched against the Yankees, the first ever Subway Series game, was on SNY on Friday. And uh, so, of course, when you mentioned thirty eight, he was the first person that popped into my head. And of co- and Skip Lockwood, of course along with everything that you guys mentioned, I will say that Skip Lockwood recorded the save in the first ever Mets game that I was at in Shea Stadium. And it was May 4th, 1976. Tom Seaver pitched, I believe, seven innings, got the win, and Lockwood got the save against the Cincinnati Reds. So there's a little personal connection with me. And I'm thinking, okay, well, they mentioned those two. Those two were kind of obvious. And they mentioned Aguilera. So great call on Aguilera in game six in, uh, in 86. And I'm, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, 38 is an obscure number. They're going into Victor's and Brian. And I think, okay, I got one. The, the one, the other one that I was thinking of, and I'm thinking they'll never mention this. I'm going to throw this out. They'll never mention it. And it was Fernando Nieve. And you mentioned it and you beat me <laughs> to the punch. Cause he was the guy I was going to bring up as a 38 where he started out like a house of fire. And I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it was 20, 2010 was his first year as a Met. If it, and then, then this makes a difference because if it was 2010. 20, I think it's 2009. It was, I think it's 2009. 20, oh, it's 2009. Okay, so that's perfect. Yeah. Um, because, okay, you know, you know why? Because when I, I remember when he came up, he, Jerry Manuel – basically was using him, I believe on opening day, he used him for three and he got a three inning save on opening day. And he became one of those guys where he would come in every day, kind of like Feliciano, but he would throw two innings at a time. And he'd throw at least one inning, if not two or three. And by the time the all-star break came in 2009, Nieve's arm was done. It was spaghetti. Well, you so know, I don't, you know, I don't really curse Nieve's really name. I curse Jerry's too. name for ruining him. What's really funny about that too is that he's listed on the, the list um, that's made by John Springer. He's put there twice, both that end July 23rd, 2009, and then uh, July 23rd, 2010. So what, what you're talking about is exactly right. He'd blow his arm out yeah. by July, obviously. So Yeah, thanks, uh, Jer- thanks Jerry. Thanks, Snoop. Some Some – before before we segue to the last word, some names that I'm kind of curious if you guys can can uh, maybe shed some light on, on for me. And this is also sometimes where you really, um, as we we I think all all four of us uh, have a lot of Mets knowledge for sure. But having Greg Prince on, you, you really like need like a whole separate podcast to go piece by piece through every single one of these names because he'd have something to say about everybody. Uh, but if you guys possibly have something to say about who Buzz Capra is and Mike, 
Do you have anything? Buzz Capra, early 70s. Uh, Reliever. And, and you know what? The only reason why I remember him is because of my yearbooks from those years. Uh, Buzz Capra, I don't remember his playing days, uh, not at that age, not at those years, but uh, a, a name that for a person my age is very familiar for some reason. Rich, elaborate. Um, well, Buzz Capra, I, I vaguely remember him. I mean, like, ve- very, just the name, because it was kind of weird, you know, the name of Buzz. Um, but I remember he was a reliever. Um, I believe he was a hard-throwing reliever in the early 70s, and that's about all I have. We'd be remiss if, oh, we, didn't mention Al ja- if we didn't mention Al Jackson. Member yes. of the Sixth Man. And I would and, like and to throw also, Tim Leary. I'd like to also throw Tim Leary out there. You know, before there was a Matt Harvey, before there was a Generation X, uh, there was a guy, Tim Leary. I mean, he had such high expectations placed on upon him, and it just never worked out for him. What a shame. So, you know, I, I, out of the annals of disappointment, you know, with Matt Pitchers, he's up there, man. He... He just had a lot of dumb luck go his way. Didn't didn't a cold day in Wrigley Field basically end his Met tenure or ruin his Met tenure? Wasn't it like a thirty degree day in Wrigley that Field in April? And he yeah, and, yeah. And, and he just he threw something like twenty pitches, and then that was it. He couldn't go anymore. And he he found that some is. life and was on. I believe he was on the '88 Dodgers and played a pivotal pivotal role in that championship. But man, as a Met, you know that's. Uh, uh, what could have been? If Guys, I'm not mistaken, his, I think Gooden his, opened up that series, and he, he threw like 140 name, pitches and stuff. Is his birth name Timothy? Timothy. <laughs> Tim is short Timothy for Timothy, Larry. yes. <laughs> like, yeah. So, I didn't realize there was a, there was a Timothy Larry on the Mets at some point. Yeah, Tim Leary, hard luck pitcher, man. Not the Tim Timothy Leary, not the Timothy. Leary. A lot of, a lot of uh, tough luck came his way. What a shame. Well, I guess that's the perfect segue out because uh, I, I, I guess my last word. Obviously, I usually I'll I finish, but we're doing some things a little backwards tonight, so I'm going to start with the last word. Um, I, I, you know, tune in and drop out. Hopefully, that's not what Jeff Wilpon's doing this off season. Uh, Metro Thomas, John. Uh, so, so very thankful to have you on the show tonight and, uh, please, sir, give us your shameless plug and then the last word. A shameless plug. Well, like I said, um, the sports uh, I, uh, I write under the alias of Metstradamus. And, uh, again, you can find me on, uh, back, back episodes of the burger ball podcast, which two of you have been on and Mike, you're next. I promise. Uh, the last word, you know, I, I I just we've we've covered everything so well in uh, in this podcast, and I don't know if I want to dip back and and repeat everything, but uh, I just I guess I want to say that we're in the middle of uh, of winter, and I've never I've never been one to uh, to to lament the loss of baseball because there's other things that I have that I can that I can cling to in the off season while I wait for baseball to come back. But, you know, these winters have been getting longer and longer. 
And it's just, and it may, it may just seem like a very uh, syrupy way to end it, but I, I miss, I miss baseball. I miss, I miss going to games. I miss, uh, I miss the atmosphere, you know, the, the atmosphere at City Field, and we can complain all we want about the direction of the team and about the ownership, and it's all valid, but I was so thankful to be at a couple of games or, or specifically, no, yeah, two games. There were two games that I think I'll always remember from this year in terms of the atmosphere that I was at. One of them was the big comeback against the Nationals where it really felt like Shea Stadium. And the other one, I think, was um, the, the, the first game of the series against the Indians when the Mets were still in it. I didn't get to go to the J.D. Davis walk-off, but I went to the game before that, and that had some serious atmosphere to it. And it's, it was nice to have that back at City Field, albeit in fleeting moments. I hope that um, City Field can grab that back consistently. And I was also at the, the Pete Alonzo record-breaking, uh, rookie record-breaking game. Uh, but that was when the Mets were out of it. So it was kind of a different a, a different sort of uh, electricity to it. But the two games, the, the, the Washington comeback and the first game against Cleveland, I really, I hold on to those um, dearly this winter. It was probably two of my favorite memories at city at city field uh from 2019 and they're up there in in terms of city field all time it's great to have that atmosphere back and i only wish that the ownership of this franchise could could care about that even a little teeny bit and try to ensure that we have what the mets had in august stays throughout a consistent season through a whole season from April through October. I think if their, if their Grinch hearts could open up and their Grinch wallets could open up just a little bit, we could, we could have that atmosphere back and it can be consistent and everybody can enjoy it. Not just old hats like us, but young kids going for the first time where their their first experience at a ballpark is electric and they never want to be away. That's how you create baseball fans for the future. You create that atmosphere and you get young people totally involved and, t- and totally make them fall in love with this game. It might be a little bit too romantic of a last word for me, but that's what I'm going with. I'm, I'm going with romance. I'm going with baseball. Come on, Will Puns. Let's bring that atmosphere back next year. Wow. Um, I uh, <laughs> just think I, I got the Grinch metaphor stuck in my head. And something happened on that autumn day when Jeff Will Puns' <laughs> heart grew to eight piles of hay. Um, so... Rich, what is your last word? Well, you know, I want to segue just for one second what John said. Uh, there are some great moments from this year at City. It, it was a fun year. Uh, for some reason, the game that sticks out for me, though, and I'll be very brief, first weekend of the season against the Nationals, um, that Saturday game that I was at, where the Mets were down. J.D. Davis had hit two home runs, but the Nationals had come back in the top of the eighth, take the lead. Mets got a home run from Alonzo, a home run from Cano to tie it, and then Keon Broxton with two outs 
got a base hit to put the Mets ahead, and, and uh, Edwin Diaz pitched a one, two, three. And there's that hope that's inherent in the early season anyway. And it was just, it, it felt great. It gave you a good launch into the season. But that said, my last word is antsy. I'm a bit antsy. Um, all right, the Braves signed Will Smith, took the best reliever off the board. Your move, Brody. What's it going to be, buddy? Uh, what are you going to do? Um, I'm very interested to see what they do. I'm, I'm seeing, you know, maybe trade Rosario because they're organizationally deep at shortstop. Use him as a piece. Maybe trade J.D. Davis. Uh, use him as a piece or Dom Smith. I'm hearing all these things. I'm sick of hearing things. I want to see something happen. I'm getting very antsy for the real hot stove stuff to begin. And then, of course, like John said, I would agree with that, too. I I miss baseball, and I, I wish it were back, so I'm antsy for that as well. Mike? I'm a man of seasons. I am in full winter league mode. All four of the traditional leagues are in full action, so I've been following that. I'm okay. I think one of the Mets' greatest benefits is Gen X's ability to compartmentalize. Did a lot of dumping on the Mets tonight, but, you know, in retrospect, this season was a lot of fun, a lot of great accomplishments, and I will look back on 19, uh, excuse me, 2019 very fondly. Uh, Sam, you mentioned Fred Wilpon. What's it going to take for this? You know, I'm going to invoke the words of the late great Leon Hutz when his latter days he says, I want to win now. I think that's what it's going to take for the Mets to actually win now or anytime soon. Is Fred Wilpon to get out of his chair, look out the window and says, man, I'm not going to take this anymore. Here, take all my money and please let's win a championship. I think that's what it will take, a little uh, tapping into his inner Leon Hess. Just don't hire Rich Kotite. (laughs) (laughs) And without further ado, we come to a close of the 38th edition of a Metsian podcast. I know that there's a lot of games that I would like to rewatch, and and John, I appreciate you throwing some ideas out my way uh, because I I missed them the first go-around actually sitting down to watch some of these games, and I always like listening to what the guys have to say as they, they work through this moment in time. Uh, so thank you all for listening. We, uh, we, we greatly appreciate it, and uh, we'll see you out there on the, uh, the Metzosphere. And uh, catch us next time for another edition next Sunday of a Metzian podcast. And since I'm the host, I have to pass it on to Rich. What do we always say at the end of a Metzian podcast? There's only one thing to say. Let's go Mets. Let's, let's go, go Mets. Mets. Let's, All right, guys. Let's, thank let's you so much. Let's go Thomas. Mets. Thanks for joining us. Let's effing go thank Mets. Guys. Thank you guys very much. Good night, guys.